Um, well, it's good to see you guys as we can progress through Advent season. And I guess we have, I can tell it's almost Christmas because we only have two candles left. So we're getting close. Um, we are completing, <clears throat> my name is Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life. And we are completing today our series on 1 John. This is week 19. It is the last one in the series. And then after that, we're going to do a couple kind of Christmas themed kind of things. And then starting in 2019, we're going to do 2 John. Don't worry, the theme and the flavor of 2 John is completely different from 1 John, but I'm excited about it. Um, but today, the title of this last message in this series is The Joyful Church. So the problem with joy, the world around us is designed to breed conflict, anxiety, Greed and fear. And everywhere we look, every human system and structure seems hostile to joy or faith. This is what the enemy desires to use conflict, fear, and anxiety like tear gas to discourage suppress and scatter the church. This is what the churches in Asia Minor that John was writing to were dealing with. It's very similar to what is happening right now in China. Some of you may have heard about the early reign reformed church in China and everything that's going on there with persecution, jail, ridicule. They're facing a lot of burden. But the problem is following Christ is designed to be a life of joy. Well, how can that be? It seems incongruent with what the world has around us. But even in discouraging, depressing, hostile, dangerous circumstances, the church is supposed to be, if it's made up of believers, a place where joy is full. This was the heart behind John's letter. A hurting, wounded, abandoned church needed affirmation and encouragement. And so what he does in the last part of chapter 5 is he ends with this list of unavoidable habits that joy in a church will produce no matter what the world around it brings. So let's read the passage. <clears throat> chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, with, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that does lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. It's interesting. <clears throat> we'll get into that later. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who, has, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's the last word in 1 John. So let's look at the history of this passage. I want to talk about the joy that was restored. These churches had endured betrayal, public disdain, unfair scrutiny, just like the one in China is dealing with right now this morning. They had successfully resisted the heresy of the Gnostics. They had endured the ridicule. They had endured the persecutions and the defections, yet they had stuck together. But even in supernatural resilience and joy, they were still hurting and they were still discouraged. This is not a Pollyanna thing where joy says, well, just get over it. There's no such thing as being depressed. You have joy. Well, that's not true. There is pain and anguish and distress, but they are separate from joy. Just being a church family was a tough decision for them every day. Unlike the decisions that we face to be a church family. Well, I was out late. It's raining. I don't feel well. For them, if they didn't show up for church, oh, well, he was arrested. Well, that's a better excuse, don't you think? <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so what John does is he provides crucial reassurance to them for five chapters using four main recurring themes. Here's what he's done. First of all, he exposed the heresy. I talked about that in the sermons that were in this series titled Preaching to the Choir, Love Defined, and Body Shaming. He attacked the main weapon used against this church, exposing the fallacies, deficiencies, and lies of bad theology about Christ and the gospel. He does a very good job of exposing it. He doesn't leave any stone unturned. The next thing he does throughout this book, and we've learned about this, he gives evidence that he sees that Christ and the spirit of Christ is in them. First of all, he says, look, you understand sin and the need for redemption. We saw that in the sermon titled Proof in the Pudding and in joy, joy, the joy of confession. Two sermons that dealt with that. <clears throat> he talks about their obvious desire for righteousness. We saw that in the sermon I preached on this series called You Look Like Your Father. He also points out that they were committed to each other no matter what. That was in the sermon titled, I'll Never Leave, and how we should love one another. Both those dealt with that theme. <clears throat> so there was plenty of evidence of Christ in them. But then he also fortifies their theology. That was in sermons I titled, Grace Experts. The one a couple weeks ago called Nike, Overcoming, Conquering. And then another sermon called Avoiding Scams. These are reminders that the truth is they were chosen, equipped, and empowered with an amazing truth, which is the gospel. And they, he says, are powerful advocates of grace and love in a world that frankly hates them. The world needed their gospel, even if they didn't know it. And they, John says, are the best only source. And the last theme he uses in this book is the firsthand witness of Christ. I talked about this last week in the sermon titled The Joyful Witness. All of these themes were recurring without, throughout the book. We talked about that. He would talk about them over and over again. And all these themes worked together to bring the church back to a place of confidence, reaffirming their faith, reaffirming their theology, and put the pains of past betrayals behind them. 
That's the history. And that's what brings us to what we see in today's passage. And I want to talk about the spiritual part of this. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I want to talk about the evidence of joy. So John concludes with four insuppressible behaviors that supernatural joy will produce in a church, even during hardship. These are naturally occurring results, <coughs> excuse me, of the gift of faith. They are results of the spirit of Christ abiding in us. The first one we see in verse 13 is a confident connection. You know, many people, including Christians, don't understand that God has designed the gospel so that you can know you have eternal life, not just hope for it. Not just think, well, maybe we can get there. I'm going to do my best. But no, the gospel is designed so that you can know that you have a confident connection. That's in verse 13. See, God wants us to know for certain that we have eternal life. He doesn't want us to dwell in anxiety like most other or all other religions. Circumstances change. Our emotions vary. They go up, down. But the saving work of redemption by Jesus is designed to secure his people. So that's the first thing that we see. One of the evidences that we have full joy is that we have a confident connection. The other evidence he talks about in verses 14 through the first part of 16 is a consistent prayer. These are God-centered prayers, not these God is your genie type of prayers. You know, I pray for an Escalade. Or a lottery ticket that wins, apparently. We were doing that earlier. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what happens is when you have joy, there is an innate desire to pray for and submit to God's will. They are frequent and consistent in their content. They are not selfish in nature. In James chapter 4, Verses 2, the second half of 2 and 3, here's what James says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What John lays out for us here is what you can tell when you have a church that is joyful. The prayers are about God's will and how we can conform to it. God, empower me to conform to your will. Not God, conform your will to empower me. That's good right there. I just made that up on my mind. Right there. It wasn't in my notes. I just said that. <laughs> See, people of faith will know how and what to pray and when. They desire God's will to come to pass in their life. It is evident in how the trust and hope is in truth. I love Romans 8.28. Here's what people of joy know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are be called according to his purpose. But then there's another evidence of joy. It is the committed fellowship in verse 16 to 18. He talks about how we will come alongside one another. As we see one another struggling, we are motivated in humility, not arrogant judgment, to pray for them in all manner of sin, John says. Far and wide, no matter what the sin is, we seek restoration, not condemnation, not trying to just be right. 
And we will sin. But we will not persist in sin. God's children always struggle. Always fight through it. And always come back. It's one of the signs that joy does exist. The nature of our connection to each other seeks this pattern with each other. We never write off our siblings. Ever. We pursue relentlessly loving them. Praying for them. Again, not in arrogance, but in humility. And we are given a role in this relentless prayer, protection, and restoration of each other. That's the committed fellowship he talks about in verses 16 through 18. If a brother is in sin that doesn't lead to death, be praying constantly. But then he does talk about this sin leading to death. You know what he's talking about there? It is very clear to me when you look at the context of 1 John. Everything that he said about 1 John from beginning to end. Everything points to one particular definition of sin to death. It's people that are committed to bad theology. In contrast, he references the necessary response to a different type of sinfulness, which is what the Gnostics had. The context of this whole letter makes it clear to me that the sin leading to death is false teaching about Christ. And here's why it's important. Because before he says, pray for those who have sin that doesn't lead to death. Pray for the restoration and connection. But the reason it's important, because we know this. False gospels don't transform hearts and lives. Only Jesus does. And he never does a bad job of saving anyone. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Those with faith, those born of God, will be thoroughly satisfied with the true gospel even when we aren't satisfied with ourselves. And then the last area is this authentic enlightenment he talks about in verses 20 to 21. The context is affirmation of what he just talked about regarding the sin leading to death. It flows right from sin leading to death into this idea of authentic, real enlightenment. He uses a Greek word uh, uh, that means idols. He's talking about a heathen god or gods and the worship of such. Clearly, he's talking about false theology. As those around claim to have found their higher knowledge through their brilliance, John makes it clear where true spiritual enlightenment comes from. It's sort of like God gave us the key pieces to the puzzle, and now they're all starting to fit together and fall into place. So he flows from this sin leading to death into the idea of this real enlightenment from Jesus. Our thirst for truth reinforces what we have been able to see and believe. And we aren't constantly seeking a better Jesus, a modernized gospel. We are completely satisfied with who he is and what he did and how he indwells us through his spirit. There is no need for false idols. So if that's what joy will look like in a church, let's talk about our personal life. So this was the... Uh, 
social media campaign this week, we won't know for sure just how joyful we are until everything around us collapses. You see, it is really hard to define joy when things are going well. Because you know why? We confuse joy with satisfaction with our circumstances. Right? We assume that joy and satisfaction with where we are and what we're doing and what we're accomplishing are the same. They couldn't be any more different. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is supernatural. It is the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. And it is evidenced by a life full of the things we described above in the spiritual application of this passage. No matter what our earthly circumstances are, we will do all these things. We will be in a place of confident connection, consistent prayer, committed fellowship, authentic enlightenment, just like the churches that John wrote to. So what does a modern-day joyful church look like? I mean, in the end, the goal is we want to be like the church that John was writing to. He says, I see plenty of evidence of Christ in your life. Even though you're going through a hard time, even though you're in pain, even though you're in anguish, even though you feel betrayed and abandoned and, and all those things are true, what I'm telling you is I see joy in you. What does that look like for us? So I'm going to give you this, uh, this uh, Pastor Wang Yi from the Early Rain Covenant Church in China. Here's a couple pictures of him. This morning, he's in jail. So <clears throat> apparently a few months before he was arrested, he knew this was coming. This is a solid, reformed, gospel-centered church in China. And he wrote this open letter about why they do what they do at their church. And he instructed people around the world that hold this, uh, this blog. It's called this uh, Partnership with China. It's a missionary type of blog. And he said, if I am missing for 48 hours, put this out. So he wrote this ahead of time. This really rocked my world as I read it this week. As I read what he wrote, in persecution. So what I did is I've tried to pull out some of the most outstanding phrases to help illustrate what full joy in a modern day church should look like no matter the circumstances. Are you ready? I don't think you are. I wasn't. Here's what he says. Unrighteous politics and the arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ. What? He says when governments fail, it shows the need for Jesus. The only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. It almost sounds like he's thankful he's under the thumb of a brutal communist regime. They also manifest the fact, governments, they also manifest the fact that true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. Wow. We love to get 
obsessed with trying to change things. And he says, that's never going to manifest what we really want. This is a pastor in jail. So he's not like speaking from some ivory tower college. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China. To testify to the world about our Christ. To testify about the kingdom of heaven. To testify to earthly, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life. He's almost like a missionary to us this morning, isn't he? Oh, wait, there's more. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. Well, that's kind of joyful. Changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to. It is not the goal for which God has given his people. The gospel. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. I don't fight for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience. The only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by his faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. Man, this is what a modern-day joyful church looks like. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ in the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. Man, I want to invite this guy to preach. We wouldn't understand a word he said, but it'd still be good. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. Church, that is supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. This is what John was inspiring in the churches that he wrote to in Asia Minor. It's why James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now I understand. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that your joy may be full. So as we end 19 weeks of 1 John, I want us to reflect on this precious group of brothers and sisters in China this morning. 
And I had a wide range of reactions as I read this letter. I was overwhelmed, inspired, encouraged. Frankly, I was a bit jealous. And then I was convicted all at once. I am jealous of how hardship has affirmed and manifested undeniable, complete, full joy. And their effectiveness in proclaiming Christ. I dare say they're better than I am. I'm not jealous of their hardship. But I am jealous of how effective they are in proclaiming the joy that they have so clearly manifested. And frankly, I feel unsure how the American church would measure up. I'm unsure how Grace Life would measure up, how Pastor Joe would measure up. I'm going to assume because God is sovereign and he has saved me that we too would have full joy. But really, how high is our priority of worshiping together compared to this church in China? Like I said, when they skip fellowship together, it's because they got arrested. When we skip, it's because we were out late or had a rough week. I can tell you this. Personally, I don't want to be in the circumstances the church in Asia Minor or the church this morning in China is in. But yet I do. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't want them, but I want them. I want to manage them. (laughs) I want us as a church to aspire to have our joy manifested to this degree. Because that is the kind of joy John desired for his readers. I don't know about you, but I want to know just how full my joy really is. But I'm scared to pray for it. Is anyone with me? But knowing, as John says, that God grants our prayers when we pray his will, right? He says that. We know this is his will, correct? That our joy would be full. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So today, I'm going to pray that Grace Life is a joyful church. I'm going to pray that the results are evident even in hardship. I'm going to pray this morning for us that our joy will be full. So dad, I'm nervous about this prayer. But my brother has inspired me. What you've done in his life has inspired me. What you did in the lives of the churches in Asia Minor has inspired me. God, we know that all things work together for good. We know that you will complete a good work in us. So we have confidence that the joy you have instilled in us even today is strong enough to survive anything the world brings. It hasn't been tested yet to the same degree as our brothers in China. And our sisters in China. But we know that it would stand up because you are the same sovereign God that saved them. God, I pray that you would inspire us by however means necessary that you see fit. To give us evidence. Yep, our joy is full. 
Lord, break us of our addiction to satisfaction with circumstances. Help us to cast that burden aside and reach for real, true, full joy. And so I pray, God, cautiously, nervously, yet optimistically, do what you need to do to make our joy full.